Maloni, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Hawkins. Coming up first. It's it's a pretty broad spectrum of society who are looking for somewhere that they can live. The Papua New Guinea government is being condemned for demolishing settlements in the capital, Port Moresby. Also. Prior to COVID, we already had very high levels of gender-based violence in our communities. Pacific Solutions are sought as pandemic exacerbates already high gender violence statistics in the region. And later on. We have 20,000 youth looking for jobs every year in the Solomons. The Solomon Islands government says it has no qualms about labour drain impacts from seasonal work participation. The executive director of Papua New Guinea's Institute of National Affairs, Paul Barker, has called the destruction of squatter settlements in the country's cities, vandalism by the state and a breach of people's human rights. His comments come after bulldozers were brought earlier this month to tear down the makeshift housing in the Morata settlement in Port Moresby. The ripping down of the settlements and expulsion of the residents is a common feature of life in PNG's biggest city, where there are dozens of such communities. Mr Barker points out that the people who have been living in these places do not have anywhere else to live because almost all land is held by the customary landowners and is not being made available to private homeowners. He told Don Wiseman the residents are from all walks of life. People who are artisans, people who are professionals in many cases, sort of there are teachers in there, there are lawyers, there are people working for the UN agencies. It's, it's a pretty broad spectrum of society who are looking for affordable, but sometimes just simply somewhere that they can live because uh, there's such a limited amount of formal land and the government used to have a housing commission that provided houses, for example, for essential workers and for various other segments of the community, uh, including um, hostels for young women and so on. By and large, they hadn't had the funds. You could say they've misused the funds, they've sold off assets, but they haven't replaced them. So there's not the land available for people to subdivide or to be allocated to actually develop their own houses. And there aren't the portions that have been made available for commercial or developments. Yes, there are a few, but it's only a fraction of what is needed for a growing population. And it's partly a reflection of the concentration of money and activities in the urban areas by successive governments and and the private sector. So you're not seeing the level of investment and support for rural infrastructure, for agricultural activities and, and other things. So people, if they are wanting to get better educational opportunities or to visit the health center or hospital, they have to move to the urban areas. So many people send their relatives to stay with relatives in the capital to be able to get a step up in education. And there's a a lot that's going on. But many of these houses that are built in the settlements, they're not people who are on the fringe. These are working people who often invest considerable amounts to make themselves good, decent homes for themselves and their families and seek to make them as safe as possible. So yes, we know there are law and order problems, which is one of the big issue. And there are certainly concerns over customary land that has uh, gone to settlers from other provinces. To what extent are these settlements illegal? Are they illegal? Well, many of them are the result of arrangements between customary owners and settlers. So they're not legally binding arrangements, but 
they are paying uh, customary owners to be able to build houses. And, and in many cases, as I say, they're building very good houses, but there is clearly a high risk involved. Some of them are, uh, are built on, on state land. State does not have a lot of land. Most of that has disappeared in most of the urban centers. I'm told that there's only one urban center where there's a significant amount of available land, and that's uh, over in Vanimo in uh, West Sepik. But all the other urban centers have a shortage of available land, and no new land has been acquired by the state. And that is the mechanism that's meant to be available for people to be able to establish commercial or private homes through the government having acquired the land in the first place. Now, clearly, that's inadequate. So many alternative mechanisms have been developed using all kinds of arrangements. So yes, there is a high level of illegality to that, or certainly lack of security to that. But at the same time, no arrangement has been made to provide an alternative. And the other thing is that many blocks of land are being allocated through backdoor means through to influential people who frankly have no more rights, certainly no more need, much less need than the people who are settling or building houses just to sort of establish their families. So these sometimes are allocated as unadvertised blocks granted without advertising. Sometimes they're using what are called urban development leases. Some of them are using other mechanisms which are actually designed for schools and other facilities, not for private arrangements. And yet those sort of deals are happening with powerful politicians and others who want land for business activities or additional properties or real estate or whatever. It's not necessarily the traditional owners who are behind the bulldozers and police being sent in to clear these areas out. No, these are very substantially businesses that by one means or another have acquired this land. Maybe sometimes it's through open processes, but sometimes it's certainly through discrete deals that are, are struck. And in many cases, it's uh, it involves overseas people, sometimes in partnership with a local businessman, a local politician, someone else. But yeah, it's outside interests and certainly outside capital that's coming in. Well, the onus is very clearly on the government to find some land that it can leave these people, sell to these people or use to accommodate these people, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, there have been plans over the years. And there has been designation of land, like the National Capital District in uh, Port Moresby has earmarked land for different purposes, but they don't have a power to enforce that. And then officials in lands department are sometimes doing these deals, sometimes going right up to the ministers who sometimes over the years have actually allocated themselves very substantial portions of land. A whole succession of, of ministers have done that, but also some officials. So and I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that everyone is... Corrupt in there. There are some very dedicated people who want to do the right thing, want to expose this, and want to sort of be able to address the problem and recognize that the priority needs to be to look after Papua New Guineans and their housing needs in urban areas because, you know, inevitably people are going to be in the urban areas for jobs. I mean, when this occurred, I know people who couldn't take their kids to school because their teachers had lost their houses, people who'd uh, the PMVs, the buses. They weren't traveling because they, uh, yeah, they were having to go and try and rescue their goods and services. And there was even a, a court injunction in this uh, latest situation, which required that they halted the clearance operations. And yet the bulldozers continued with police 
present. And sometimes it certainly does seem to be true that the police prioritize certain business interests that reward them over maintaining the rule of law and order in PNG. Let's say in the case of this most recent eviction, where do these people go? The NCD governor is indicating he's going to try and find some land. The prime minister has made some statements apologizing for the situation, but the onus is certainly on them to actually assist and, and not just to pay lip service now and then then forget it. Because otherwise, these people then all have to move in with their relatives. And by and large, many of these houses have already got large numbers of people residing in them, relatives, people going to school in uh, in Moresby or Ley or wherever, being looked after by relatives. And, uh, and then you demolish their house and they then look around for other relatives that they can try and move in. So it places a double burden on them and not so many will go back to the home provinces and it couldn't have come this this one just lately couldn't have come at a worse time because it's the time of the finals exams it's the grade eight the grade 10 and the uh, the final grade 12 school exams and then you go and bulldoze the houses it's it's very much lacking any sympathy empathy or whatever gender-based violence continues to be an issue for the pacific with statistics revealing that 60% of women and girls have experienced violence at the hand of an intimate partner or family member. This issue was further exacerbated at the height of the COVID-19 lockdowns across the region. RNZ Pacific reporter Rachel Nath spoke with the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat's gender specialist, Dr Fiona Hokula, who says finding a Pacific solution is necessary to combat this increased violence. I think from the data and the research and the data that has come out from the service providers um, around the region, I think one of the key things is that people lost their jobs. And so there was economic struggles. Also, this was a very trying time in, in terms of mental health. And so these are the kinds of things that contributed to increases in in reporting on domestic violence. I, I would say in the COVID time, primarily the, the rise in unemployment and fi- financial difficulties, but also, yeah. you know, we're taking into account that prior to COVID, we already had very high levels of gender-based violence in our communities. And so this is this sort of exacerbated it in some mm-hmm. ways. What was the general assistance in this time for the Pacific. Uh, I know that in the Pacific, we have a taboo around mental health discussions. It's not openly spoken about. Um, Did the data show that uh, there was enough significant assistance given or post-pandemic as well? I don't, I'm not sure about that, to be honest. I don't have any information on that, but I do know that, um, you know, through the pandemic, this issue of um, mental health and self-care has re- is really something that has come out um, a lot more clearly. And um, as you've mentioned, this is a taboo subject in many places, but it has to be brought out into the open because it does have uh, an effect on, on things like gender-based violence. What were the forms like? What kind of violence did we see? Were they within families? Were they um, sexual violences? What were the peaks of these violent trends? Most of the, the information from women's groups and um, activists that it's been domestic violence, 
to violence within the home. Yes. Um, was, was one of the key things that were reported. Um, and, but having said that, again, you know, other forms of gender-based violence, such as rape and sexual harassment and things like that, are not necessarily reported. So we wouldn't know, but we yes. do know that, you know, in, in during the COVID times, um, the helplines that, that are available in, in different countries um, had seen an increase in calls relating to domestic violence. I would like to highlight if there was, um, you know, during this COVID times, if we saw an increase in emotional violence, I know that is not something we talk about quite often in the Pacific, but did we start noticing an increase in emotional violence? So I think this is one of the things that is not reported because we don't often uh, categorize this as a, um, a form of violence, um, but it, it is in itself uh, an important form of um, violence that we need to also address because it's also related to what is known as um, or uh, other forms of, such as coercive control, which has an impact on other uh, on mental health and other things. But during COVID-19, um, as I mentioned, from the, the reports that were coming out from the helplines and from women's groups, it was the increase in domestic violence related calls, which again is not only physical violence, but the other forms of violence as well. Right. And so what were the positives or what, what areas do we see need work so that change can be achieved across the board? I think it's really about inclusivity. When you're to, we're talking about marginalized groups, inclusivity and ensuring that um, we have the rights of all of our people at the forefront. And so when we're talking about a, addressing gender-based violence, it's violence that is not only violence against uh, women, which we know is the most prevalent forms of violence in our region, but also being be mindful of um, other minority groups, marginalized, I should say, not minority, but marginalized groups and groups that often don't have the opportunity to be able to have these kinds of issues highlighted. So, you know, while we're talking about gender-based violence, it's also the other issues that can affect um, our marginalized groups. And during COVID, you know, that included access to transport and access to safe health services, all of which is intertwined. The Solomon Islands government says it has no qualms about labour or brain drain impacts on the country due to participation in labour mobility schemes in Australia and New Zealand. This is despite leaders and officials in other Pacific countries, including Samoa, Vanuatu and even Fiji, expressing concerns about citizens leaving key positions in the private and public sector because of the higher seasonal income available through seasonal work. Joining me is the Permanent Secretary of the Solomon Islands Ministry of Foreign Affairs and External Trade, Colin Beck. Thank you for sitting with me for the Pacific Waves. Would it be fair to say that Solomon Islands' participation in labour mobility schemes has increased significantly in the last few years? Yes, um, correct. Um, uh, the labour mobility um, uh, have actually grown um, in the last two years. Um, 
especially during the COVID uh, period. Um, much of it is basically just because we have a, a strategy and policy um, on labor mobility uh, matched with a, um, a labor mobility unit within the ministry. So um, we have uh, compliance, marketing, research, information, and welfare offices. Um, so it, it, we have a structured uh, approach in terms of responding to the labor market, uh, um, both in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, it's um, it it started really slowly. If I remember, it's always been the Vanuatu's and the, I think Samoa and Tonga sort of up there and Fiji with the with the higher contributors. Can you just give us a quick indicator before I move on to the next question of how much of an increase we've seen in the past two years? A massive uh, increase. Um, certainly, uh, yeah, uh, Solomon Islands on labour mobility is a latecomer. Um, initially, uh, the market was more or less focused on our other neighbors um, until it was um, opened up to for um, Solomons to, to, to enter. Um, yeah, so the numbers we have now at the moment uh, is around more than uh, 4,500. Um, it is still small compared to our other neighbors, but uh, it is, um, it is um, a real growth um, in terms of the contribution it's doing for our national economy and the numbers we have from uh, pre-COVID period. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the, a large, a significant number of the, the workforce from Solomon Islands is in Australia. Is that right? Correct. Um, the number that we have in Australia is 4,100, uh, more than 4,100 workers. Um, uh, some of the reasons for, you know, in terms of the growth that we have, we have worked very closely uh, with the Australian government on, on this. Um, and we have a um, uh, here to work uh, brand in which uh, all our workers um, take with them in terms of the committing the values that uh, we have attached to the uh, brand here to work uh, in terms of commitment, dedication and uh, responsibility. Um, we also have a very good uh, pre-departure uh, program that we keep uh, refining as we as we keep progressing the numbers. Uh, um, we also try to respond to the various issues that uh, that uh, emerge, and we try to incorporate that into the pre-departure for future workers as well. Um, so, so that's that's um, basically the reason why we have a little bit more in um, uh, Australia, certainly with New Zealand, uh, we only have uh, around uh, 400. Um, we were one of the first countries basically to, to register our interest to participate, but I, the, the focus uh, have been uh, with our navies rather than with Solomons. We gather this is more to do with the COVID uh, situation, um, but th that's where we are um, on numbers. You mentioned issues, then I'll come to that a bit later, but um, there's been uh, recent signals of concern from Samoa, from Vanuatu about uh, a drain on labor, uh, uh, even a, a brain drain from their participation uh, in these schemes. And I think there's been some limits placed in the case of Samoa, also considerations for safety of workers and that kind of thing. Are there any concerns on the Solomon Islands side in terms of what a cap would be on on sending workers overseas yeah on the, on the question of uh cap uh, we don't really have any cap um, the pacific is diverse um we are different levels of uh, development our population is uh, 
slightly different as well. Um, we have 20,000 youth looking for jobs every year in the Solomons. Uh, our economy is also fairly narrow. We don't have enough domestic jobs to, to provide for these uh, 20,000 uh, youth annually looking for, for work. I think to put it into context is that we have one recruitment drive and the interest uh, that uh, applications that we received from our workers, uh, potential workers, was around 8,000 in that one recruitment. So we don't really have an issue when it comes to numbers. I think we have more, we have a, basically a challenge of finding more opportunities, employment opportunities for, for our workers. Now, turning to the challenges, your recent statement, you mentioned with the increase in workers, there's been an increase in people absconding. Uh, what exactly is the nature of this ex- absconding and, and how prevalent is the problem? Yeah, well, issue of uh, absconding. I think when it comes to when it comes to New Zealand, there's no issue. Uh, we don't really have any issue relating to absconding. But the, the there is a problem of absconding. But the problem is um, manageable. It's um, it's we have a well-oiled uh, uh, mechanism in dealing with it. So um, it has not become um, a really uh, big issue. We currently have we're trying to respond to it in uh, in different uh, in different ways uh, first uh, institutionally we have um, worked with the australian uh, government in terms of having country liaison offices we have two working um, uh, supporting you know contacting and supporting the workers welfare con- uh, supporting the uh, employers um, uh, we have also the high commission in Canberra, as well as in um, uh, the Consulate General in Brisbane, uh, beside um, pastoral visits from the Labour Mobility Unit to our uh, uh, workers in Australia in terms of uh, addressing some of this. So our our approach basically is um, whenever we see uh, challenges, we basically uh, try to uh, address it while it's still small and ensure that uh, we contain it and does not and will not affect our uh, reputation. As we speak, our reputation here to work remains uh, uh, strong, and and this is probably one of the reasons why our numbers keep growing. That's specific waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts, and if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Takafitai, tofani.